right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And as you're turning there, I want to say something to you personally here. We look at the Christmas story every year, and that is not by accident. And I have taught this story, this set of passages many, many times, and I got to say, uh, it never gets old to me. And my hope is that it will never get old for us as a church. That there's always a sense of wonder and amazement when we come to the Christmas story. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was doing my research and I came across this paragraph in one of Tim Keller's Christmas books where he talks about the type of wonder and amazement we should have when it comes to the gospel. And he says this, He said, we should be just as shocked that God would give us, us, with all of our smallness and flaws, such a mighty gift. No Christian should ever be far from the astonishment that I, I of all people should be loved and embraced by his grace. I would go so far as to say that the perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. Because what is Christianity? If you think Christianity is mainly going to church, believing a certain creed, living a certain kind of life, then there will be no note of wonder or surprise about the fact that you are a believer. If someone asks you, are you a Christian? You will say, well, of course I am. It's hard work, but I'm doing it. Why do you ask? Christianity in this view, something done by you, so there's no astonishment about being a Christian, is a problem. However, if Christianity is something done for you and to you and in you, then there is a constant note of surprise and wonder. And where does all that come from? It comes from the fact that God has done all that we see and has done it for us. So if someone asks you if you're a Christian, you should not say, of course, There should never be an of-courseness about it. It would be more appropriate to say, yes, I am, and that is a miracle. Me, a Christian, who would have ever thought it? Yet he did it, and I am his. Isn't that a great view of Christianity? Isn't that a great view of the gospel itself and what it should rise up within us? Well, it's my hope that we would have that same kind of wonder and surprise and amazement as we look at the Christmas story. Let's pick it up in Luke 1, 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So, a lot to unpack there. First piece. The fact that it is mentioned that it is in the sixth month, that is a historical detail that reminds us that we are looking at actual history and not a fable. That just like the gospel itself, the Christmas story is a miracle, not a myth. And we must never lose sight of the fact. How about the fact that we meet Gabriel here? Anytime you see him mentioned in the Bible, there's always one of two things happening. There's either big trouble or big news. And thankfully here, it's big news for Mary. 
And what is it that he has come to communicate to her? Well, it's the fact that she is going to carry God's son, the Lord Jesus. He's already appeared once in the Gospel of Luke to announce to Mary's cousin Elizabeth that she would be the bearer of a special baby as well, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And now Mary gets the biggest news of all. Now, we also find out here that this encounter takes place uh, in Nazareth. And what we find here about Nazareth is that Nazareth is a lot like where I came from, uh, a dot on a map dot kind of place, uh, except this would have been even more significantly small and nondescript than Big Stone Gap from which I hail. It was uh, a place that even today is just thousands of people, but back then it would have been 10, 20, 50, 100 people tops. They would have lived in very simple homes. They would have likely been very poor. And throughout all of the Bible, you get the vibe of what people thought of Nazareth from John 1:46, when Nathaniel says this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the answer there in his mind is, of course, no. But what about the idea here that Mary was a virgin? Now, Maybe familiar, there's some debate about that from some that claim to be particularly enlightened and say, oh, this just means a young maiden. Well, that word could be used this way, but that's not the way that Luke is using this word. A virgin, in this case, is exactly what you think that it is. It is someone that has never been with a man. And so this is of paramount importance. Again, there have been some who come along in the name of trying to make Christianity more relevant and say, oh, we can let go of the virgin birth. It's not that big a deal. One writer a few years ago it kind of likened it to this. It's like springs on a trampoline. If we just pull out one of those springs of the virgin birth, it's not a big deal. Trampolines still hold us up. That's just not the truth because the Bible makes a big deal about Mary being a virgin. It is the fulfillment of many prophecies of old and we cannot let go of this because the Bible doesn't let go of it and, in fact, makes it of paramount importance. But when we think about this idea of Mary, we do need to understand, to the degree that we can, who she was and what she was about. And I'll say more about this in a bit, but let me drill in on some important facts here. She was very young, teenager, possibly as young as 12, definitely no more than 15, and she was much like the girls in her orbit at that time. She would have been married very young, and she would not be like we see her pictured in most Christian art. You see Mary most of the time, and what does she look like? She looks like she's barely resting on the ground, floating most of the time, sometimes glowing. And then on top of that, she's well put together, looks like she's been pulled out of an anthropology ad and placed in this very pristine manger scene. Certainly not the case. And for her to be in this situation where Gabriel comes to her and says what he's going to say in just a moment, it would have been unbelievably significant, scary, disruptive to her life. I like what Kent Hughes has to say about this. He says, from all indicators, her life would not have been extraordinary. She would marry humbly, give birth to a number of poor children, never travel further than a few miles from home, and one day die, like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. 
so here she is, just living her life, doing her thing, going about her day. And in the midst of all this, here comes this angel, and he's going to speak to her. But there's one more piece that we need to grab here. And we don't have as much information about Joseph as we do about Mary. But we see here in this verse that he is from the house of David. And that is significant because, again, it shows the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus had to come from a certain line, and guess what? He sure did. And we take a look sometimes at Matthew chapter 1, and we see that genealogy of how Jesus came to be, and it is profound. And since we're not doing that this year, I would encourage you to do it on your own. You will be amazed at what you find out comes through the lineage of Joseph and the people that are there. But when you take all this together, it gives us our first of two points tonight. And that is that God uses nobodies from nowhere to change the course of history. God uses nobodies from nowhere to change the course of history. I like what Dan Darling has to say this in his wonderful little book, Characters of Christmas. He says, the Christmas story reminds us that God moves in and among those whose society most often leaves behind. That the thread of redemption woven throughout Scripture winds its way through a lot of small towns and seemingly little lives. Isn't that true? Isn't that encouraging for people like us? Because even the most well-established and the well-known person in this room is still really, in the scope of eternity, a nobody from nowhere. We all are apart from God himself. But when you look through the Bible and you see how he used the children of Israel, he used King David, he used the disciples, the apostles, Nehemiah, Gideon, all of these different people from all different walks of life. Some were more established than others, but at the end of the day, the general trajectory is nobody's from nowhere it reminds us of what we see in 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And for any of us who get it tonight, and we feel that insignificance appropriately, now you can't overdo it, okay? That'll be another sermon for another time. But for those who feel that appropriate resizing, I want to remind you that you're in a good place tonight. That our insignificance does not disqualify us from being used by God, but rather in some ways it qualifies us. Because do you know what the central value in all of the world is and all of Scripture? It's God's glory. That the chief end of man is that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what the Westminster says to us. And if we can live our lives in the right place, not fighting God for his glory, not fighting God for all the credit, not trying to be the main character of our own story, well, then we're in a good place where God might actually do something through us. And you might say, but Dustin, I just don't have those opportunities. I just work in a lab. 
or I just work in a warehouse, or I'm just a teacher, or I'm just a stay-at-home mom, or I just do IT all day. Friends, the good news of the gospel is if you belong to Jesus, you're not just anything. Everything you do, when done for God's glory, has meaning and purpose and value. He uses nobodies from nowhere to change the course of history. You know, I do a lot of reading in the the business space and the, and the investment space and so on and so forth. And it's really interesting now that there's this trend that people have moved away from simply making money for money's sake. And there's a lot of emphasis on purpose right now. People that have no context with God are still trying to help other people find their purpose and live a meaningful life. And I see that, on the one hand, I'm encouraged that maybe we've made a little bit of progress, but at the end of the day, it makes me really sad. Because even if you amass a mountain of wealth, and yes, you do some good in the world, that's still not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is not just doing good. It's knowing God and making Him known and letting that be the reason for the doing good. The reason for all of the other things. And so, friends, as we hear this tonight, as we see the nobodies from nowhere that God uses to change the world, let us be encouraged. Because if he can do it with them, he can surely do it with us. And if he made clear their purpose, he will make clear our purpose. To know him and to make him known in the world. Look back here in verse 28, because I love what the angel says to Mary. It says, he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And that phrase there that uh, is translated, O favored one, literally means full of grace. It means that she has been shown the grace of God, but it does not mean that she now extends that grace to other people in some kind of repository way. And if you came from a Roman Catholic background or if you have conversant relationships with somebody that knows Catholic theology, you know that this is a real point of difference between what we're saying that the Bible says and what they would say. It's almost that they view Mary as if she's a, a, a pitcher. This is my illustration, not theirs, that, that now pours out grace to other people because she had so much extra. But I don't think, in fact, I'm sure... That's not what Luke is saying here, and that's not what Gabriel is saying here. He's saying you've been favored, you have been shown grace, and then again, look at that phrase, the Lord is with you. Now, that'll come up again here in just a moment when we make some more application. But I want to look at Mary's response first. It says, but she was greatly troubled at that saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, a couple things I want to point out there. First one is this. The Bible always keeps it real. I love that about the Bible. Because revisionist history would say, and Mary gently floated along, hearing those words from the angel with her glowing hair, and immediately with a sanguine smile, said, let's do this. But that's not what happened, because she was greatly troubled. 
She was freaked out. She was concerned. You can feel that in the weight of what is being said here. And then when it says, tried to discern this sort of green, you, you, or greeting, you, you can almost see the furrowing of her little brow, trying to put the pieces together. And remember the reality of this. Small girl, not very educated, no lights, and here comes this glowing angel showing up. And in fact, the fact that, that, that even this, she would have been frightened by the angel bit as well. And I mean, we can all try to play hard like we wouldn't, but guess what? You'd be freaked out too, even in 2022. But at this time, there was even anecdotal folklore stories of people who were angels raping young girls, just like her. She may have feared for her own safety. And then on top of that, it's just not usually a good idea for, for an older man to be with a younger girl and nobody else around. I think we can figure out why. So she was genuinely concerned about this. And I think that's why the angel says, look back in your text here, do not be afraid. And then he says it again, for you have found favor with God. And anytime you see something repeated in scripture, why? It's to show emphasis. And so he is comforting her with this notion that you have found favor with the Almighty. Now let's stop and think about what that might mean for us couple different things. Every one of us in this room, to some degree or another, knows what it's like to have a plan and then to have some kind of divine or otherwise intervention that changes that plan. Now, if we're honest, we usually don't like that. I mean, if somebody shows up and they're like, oh, we made a mistake, you're, you don't actually owe this in taxes, you now get this and a refund. I mean, we like that kind of stuff. But how often does that happen? Not very often. So we know a little bit of this, what's going on here. And part of what Mary would be dealing with, we'll talk about more about this in a little bit, but to say that this would have been disruptive to her is an understatement. But let's just talk about the fear here. Some of us in this room feel this more than others, but you know what it's like to get one of those phone calls that no one ever wants to get. You know what it's like to get called into the principal's office or the boss's office to have one of those conversations that nobody wants to have. We all know that feeling of the catch in our stomach and that gripping fear that can come upon us. And in the midst of that, what does the angel say? Don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Let me give you some good gospel news tonight. He says that to Mary in the passage, but God is also saying that to us in the gospel. Because guess who else has found favor with God? Every single man or woman or boy and girl that has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The favor of God that was Jesus's has been given to us. It's been credited on our account. We have found favor with God. Therefore, we do not have to be afraid. Now, for some of us here, you hear that. Maybe you've got the gift of faith and you could say, yes. Yes, but not everybody's there. 
And for many people, maybe most people, it is a struggle and a fight to believe the truth of the gospel again and again and again. But let me say it to you tonight. It's a lesson from Mary's life. You don't have to be afraid because you found favor with God in Christ. You don't have to be afraid of whatever recessionary difficulty is coming next year because you have favor with God. You don't have to be afraid of whatever can or could happen at work because you have favor with God, with your family, with your health, whatever it is. If you have the favor of God through the Lord Jesus, you don't have to be afraid. Let's learn that lesson from Mary tonight. Now let me go back and get one other thing here that he says. He also says this, look back in your text. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. I have personal experience with that phrase. Some of you guys have heard the story. Most of you have not. But there was a season in Emmanuel's life, our, our sending church, where that phrase played an important role. And I happened to be there kind of at the end of it. Some of you remember this. But I remember when I was moving down here, we were trying to discern, is God really calling us to plant a church? We're going to leave this stable situation, go to this situation where we don't know if this is going to pan out or not. And I remember being just like Mary many, many days looking at my situation and going, have we lost our minds? And I remember that the guy that drove me around showing me property here ultimately helped us find what would become our first house here in Franklin. I remember he would say to me, Dustin, the Lord is with you. And I remember we were driving this back road one time it's over near where Andrew, Andrew and Crystal live, driving down toward Canterbury, actually, and we crossed that hill, that little bump there, the one that kind of takes your belly. Woo! And I remember I was actually kind of freaking out because I was like, how in the world is this going to pan out? And he said, Dustin, you don't have to worry about it. The Lord is with you. And it was as if God himself was sitting next to me in that little Acura that he was driving too fast that day. And he looked over at me and he said that. And I was thinking, you know what? The Lord is with me. And whether this church plant succeeds or fails, the Lord is with me. It's going to be okay. And here we are, eight years later. And the Lord is with us. And I want you to know that the Lord is with you. Look back at it there in your text. It says, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And again, in the gospel, that's not just true about Mary. That's true for all of us. And I wonder what is the place of pain, of concern, of difficulty in your life where you most need to lay hold of that truth. In your marriage, in your finances, in your parenting, wherever it is, friends, let's remember it, that the Lord is with us. And I would even like to take it a step further and give us a little uh, assignment here. And I'm not saying we have to do this in a creepy and weird way, but I would like to encourage you every time it is appropriate to sprinkle that into your conversations. To say that to somebody who's struggling. To say that to somebody who wonders, 
How's this all going to work out? And just remind them gently, hey, the Lord is with you, and I'm with you. I'm praying for you. And if you're like me, that is going to have an effect sometimes that you see, most times that you don't see, but that is the type of truth that can help somebody through a hard time. Friends, let us never forget the Lord is with us. And let me tell you something, Mary's going to need it because look what happens. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, I'm guessing that Mary, she didn't have this on her radar of what she thought was going to happen with the kids that she had. She was probably hoping that they make it, literally, and then that they grow up okay and helping dad's carpenter shop and so on and so forth. That, that was probably her big plan. Her major definite aim for her kids would not have been uh, he'll be in charge of everything. What? No, I mean everything. Like all the things. All the things will be under Jesus' rule. And yet, that's what God had. And so Mary naturally says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And let me just say, there's a little bit of debate on how this is to be interpreted. I'll tell you where I and where most come out here. This is not a question of disagreeableness. It's not even great doubt. It is more of a, how can this be? A wonder, an amazement, not an I don't believe this is possible. And then the angel very graciously gives her some insight. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the parallels here are significant. The Holy Spirit coming upon her that shows that the divine is involved. The fact that he's going to be holy means that he will be perfect and blameless without spot or blemish. Be completely set aside. He's a one-off. Never been one like him before. Will never be another like him. The fact that he's the son of the Most High is a way at the time when they would say the son of something means that this person is going to have all of the privileges and rights and authorities of or authority of their father. He would be the son of God, the one who is indeed in charge of everything. And then as an extra piece of grace here, he says this, he says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this in the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now I think part of the reason why this comes up here is an object lesson for Mary. Now, clearly, there was to be a forerunner. John the Baptist had all kinds of divine reasons for why he's on the planet, but I think part of why he gets pointed out here is to say to Mary, hey, listen, 
you're going to be facing the biggest challenge you've ever faced. But when you were tempted to look within and to doubt and to wonder, have I completely lost it? You can look out and you can see Elizabeth's belly and you can know how old she is and you can see the miraculous work of God in her life and be reminded that there is miraculous work of God in your life. You know that's how God works sometimes, isn't it? In community, that he gives us a relationship with, with him that is personal, but it's not private. That you get to see what God's doing over there to be reminded that even if you don't see it here, it's still happening. That's an additional kindness from the Lord. And so when you take all this together, I want to give us our second point here. And by the way, I only have two, so this is it. And that is that Mary provides a compelling example for us to follow. And I think we need to say that full-throated as Protestants. Because we can get kind of paranoid about this, right? I already said this. The Roman Catholics, they overdo this. I think they get this wrong. They make too much of Mary. But most Protestants don't make enough of Mary. And I think what Luke is doing here, just from the way he constructs his narrative, is he's clearly shining the spotlight on her as an example for us to follow. One way to think about it, one way I've taught it before, is that she is a little H hero that points us to the capital H hero. So we don't worship Mary, we don't venerate her in any way, but this is our sister from which we can benefit from her example of obedience. And as a person who has daughters, that's important to me. I want to be able to look at my girls and say, hey, look at your sister over there. She stepped up in a crazy situation, and look how God used her. I found this really poignant passage in this book by Dan Gar uh, Darling called The Characters of Christmas that I think really highlights this for us. It's a little bit lengthy, but it'll be worth every syllable. So let's listen to this. He says, what was Mary saying yes to? At the angel's words, Mary had a simple response. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. In other words, Mary said yes to God. And it was no simple yes. Let's consider what Mary was signing up for. She was saying yes to bearing the shame of an unwed pregnancy at a time when this carried incredible social stigma. Would her friends and family even believe her claims that she had been visited by the Holy Spirit? Would Joseph stay with her or put her away? We know the end of the story, but Mary did not. Mary was saying yes to raising the Son of God. It's hard enough to raise a fallen child, but imagine the burden of raising Jesus. Imagine her fear every time he got a cold, every time he left the house to play with his friends, Every time he picked up a sharp knife in Joseph's carpenter's shop. Sure, God would ensure that Jesus would only die according to plan, but for Mary, the responsibility of caring for the most important child in the world would be staggering. Mary was saying yes to a lifetime of roller coaster emotions. She would see him feed the multitudes, raise the dead, and walk on the water. 
but she would also see him mocked, jeered, taunted, and even at times by his family and hometown friends. She would hold him close, but she would also let him go. She'd feed him and clothe him and rock him to sleep. She'd feel him push away and grow toward manhood. She'd even be rebuked by him at a wedding. But most of all, Mary knew what was coming. She may not have understood all that Calvary would bring, but she knew enough to dread the day that her son would be unjustly put on trial by his own people, her people. She knew enough to feel the foreboding sense prophesied by Simeon at the temple that he'd be beaten senseless, hung on a tree, nails in his hands, and a sword in his side. Every parent's nightmare is to see their children suffer. And Mary would live this in the most acute and agonizing way possible. So this is what Mary was saying yes to. And she said, yes, I will do this, Lord. So the question for us then becomes, will we say yes to the Lord? Whatever it is that God is calling us to do to lean into these gospel truths tonight, to be challenged by this example. Maybe for some to turn from sin and trust in Christ for the first time. Will we say yes to the Lord? Friends, what is it that the Lord is saying to you tonight? What particular thing is he calling you to through your sister's example? What particular encouragement is he asking you to refresh in your mind tonight? Whatever it is, let's say yes to the Lord this evening. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for calling us together. We thank you for the example of our sister. We thank you for her faithfulness. We thank you for these lessons from her life. But Lord, even more than that, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection. And we pray that as we reflect on this Christmas story, it would be Jesus that we make the most of. And Lord, we thank you for the symbol that you give us to help us do that every year. To be reminded of what communion means and for the joy that it gives us, especially during the Christmas season. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now, that you would speak to us later, that you would speak to us through this symbol. In Jesus' mighty name.